This is an episode of the Annex Sociology Podcast, a podcast for academic sociologists. For more information, visit theannexpodcast.com. Okay, we are live. Welcome, everybody, to the first episode of the fifth year of the Annex Sociology Podcast. My name is Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. The Annex is a podcast about academic sociology, and in this new iteration, we're going to hold live recording sessions on Tuesday at 12.15 p.m. Eastern Time. It'll allow people to engage with us through the chat window for audience feedback. We can uh, bring back banter from the first iteration and talk about some uh, news issues and uh, take a look and meet people from across the discipline and have that water cooler conversation we all are hoping to get. Uh, before we introduce, we got a great episode uh, to kick things off. And before we uh, introduce it, I just want to preview some talks that we have coming up in uh, the next few weeks. So in two weeks, join us on November 29th for a talk about making governments respect human rights. We're going to talk about a new book by Lisa Hayar from UC Santa Barbara, The War in Court. It's a book about how lawyers fought to uh, fought uh, torture uh, uh, by the US government during the uh, war on terror. And we'll talk about what's happening on the in the ASA section, in the, P, uh, the peace, war, and social conflict section with Hayar, who's the chair, and two other great sociologists, Christopher N.J. Roberts from the University of Minnesota and Hedy Viterbo from Queen Mary University in London. And then the next week, check this out, Raul Perez, author of the acclaimed Souls of White Jokes, a book that details how racist <laughs> humor reinforces white supremacy. He's going to be here with two killer guests, Anne Morning from NYU and Victor Ray from the University of Iowa. So if you are a fan of the sociology of race, you're not going to do much better than that. That's what's happening in contemporary sociology in the year 2022. And, uh, you know, so come join us. It's on Tuesdays. One last thing before we start the episode. The Annex is brought to you by the state and city of New York through its support of the CUNY system. It's made possible by New Yorkers' commitment to an excellent public university system. And with that, let's begin. First, I'm here with my colleague, Daniel Morrison. Daniel Morrison from uh, Abilene Christian University. Dan, do you want to uh, say hi, uh, introduce yourself? Well, Joe, it's good to see you. And I'm so excited about this series for the show. It's been a pleasure to work with you on um, you know, these past year or so, maybe even longer than that. And I'm super excited for our two guests today who have a lot to contribute to the conversation around the sociology of science in the United States and, and elsewhere. So thanks. Thanks for joining us. That's awesome. And today I brought in two ringers. The first is uh, J.P. Pardo Guerra from the University of California, San Diego. J.P. recently published The Quantified Scholar with uh, Columbia University Press. We're going to talk about the book later in the episode. It looks at what happened when the British government tried to develop a system to incentivize researchers 
using or, or assess them using quantitative performance metrics. Everything's being put to metrics, so why not science? We'll discuss what happened later, but first, welcome, JP. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and to see all of you again. This is absolutely terrific. And finally, uh, one of sociology's young stars in the field of science, knowledge, and technology, Charles Gomez from the University of Arizona. Charles has published a lot of work that uses the tools of computational and mathematical sociology to look at questions about how knowledge circulates among people and takes hold within communities. He's a leading expert in quantitative methods that people use to chart the spread and impact of ideas. And he has a really deep understanding of the kind of stuff that the British government was up against when they tried to put science to numbers. He's an amazing young scholar doing amazing work. Welcome, Charles. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Joe. And I should also note that um, I used to be part of QC and Joe and I used to be colleagues. So it's great to uh, get to be asked back. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah. Well, we we miss you a lot, Charlie. Uh, Likewise. It's <laughs> oh, it really great to have you around. But before we get started, uh, with uh, science technology, I wanted to share with you a, dis a discussion that uh, I was participating in uh, this week on social media and get your takes from it. Now, I don't know about your department, but one topic that we often discuss in, uh, in, in our department is uh, declining enrollments discipline-wide. Philip Cohen has been uh, sharing stuff, suggesting that enrollments in sociology are dropping. And we're co cognizant about enrollments in our department, uh, and we worry about sustaining. Is this something you guys wrestle with in your departments, enrollment? Oh, absolutely. We're yeah. obsessed at recruiting and retaining our students. I mean, for sociology, not a, a very well-subscribed major here at Abilene Christian University. We do have a lot of transfer students, a lot of campus mm -hmm. athletic workers who are in our programs. Um, but with changes in that market in terms of the structure of transfers and sort of the 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 lack of restrictions on transfers, we get a lot of movement in and out of our of our department. And so we're super interested in recruiting and retaining undergrads for sure. Well, you guys, uh, JP, I, I, well, well, we'll find out in a minute. JP doesn't worry. They're not worrying about enrollments over where he is. Uh, it's not, actually- Not right now. Oh, I, would, I wouldn't <laughs> say so. We'll find out in a moment. <laughs> Charlie, I'm not going to put on the spot. Charles just just joined his department. Oh, uh, I do. I, I I actually did some tidbits. Uh, oh, oh. So, well, not not too excited. Well, we have like a sort of a healthy amount. We have around 180 majors or so. We have a lot of minors for whatever reason. But like mm -hmm. most public institutions, um, it's having butts and seats, in particular for our undergrads, that really drives revenue. So it is a concern. Our other strategy too is that since we're not a department, we're a school, which is a whole other story altogether. We have multiple different programs. So we have sort of like sociology adjacent programs. So like um, we have a crim minor, uh, health and society major. So those sort of like are kind of like pontoons that keep sociology afloat in some ways. So diversified portfolio. Oh, very, very interesting. It's it, it's 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 something that we're all wrestling with because like enrollments are the lifeblood of departments mm -hmm. and like departments are the backbone of the discipline like no departments and the discipline would be a much smaller endeavor. So one what, what what do you do when you're faced with this? Well, one way is to look at the market leaders and see what they're doing. And uh, so take a look at this table. This is in honor of Charlie and mine's uh, 
uh, colleague, Emeritus Dean Savage, who used to circulate this. These are the largest sociology departments in the United States by uh, majors graduated in 2020. So this is iPads data. And like, first off, what do you think? My, my first thing is like, what's going on at UCLA? That's an enormous program, like 800 graduates. They must have like 1,500 students in sociology. And then Santa Barbara is next, uh, University of Northridge. So California is very well represented. JP, why is sociology so huge in California? What's going on because out there? We, we, we live in a, in a utopia. I mean, if you go outside <laughs> and you walk on the streets, there's absolutely no poverty. Everyone has affordable housing. Racism is gone in California. It's amazing. And that's what happens when you have really healthy sociology programs <laughs> in your state schools. It's incredible. I would totally recommend it. I like I want yeah right well there's definitely something going on in California because wow those departments are big I mean I guess that one of so one of the things that happens with us uh and we've been growing quite a lot in the last five to ten years is that the UC system for example has been absorbing or increasing enrollments considerably um our campus is projected to reach about 35,000 students uh, by 2030, I think. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the transfers and a lot of the new students who join the campuses can't get into impacted majors like engineering, um, the sciences in general, computer um, science and computer engineering. And lots of them end up in the social sciences and they're terrific, amazing students that find a home in in sociology, in political science, et cetera, et cetera. And that makes the programs actually quite healthy. Mm. But it's mm. it's it's a bit of a numbers game. Um, and it has to do with the amount of students that the UC system and the state, the Cal State system um, serves. Dan, where, where are all the big Texas universities in here? What's... Uh... Why, why, where are the well, they're not, you know, they're, obviously they're not on the list. I mean, just look at that list, right? It's the top 10 are all UC or CSU schools. What do we know about California, right? It's the most populous state. It's one of, if not the most diverse state in terms of racial and ethnic, you know, uh, makeup. It's also a state with, um, you know, contrary to, to JP's literally incredible description that has a <gasps> high... <laughs> high degree of high degree of inequality, right? Uh, and you know some pretty severe, I would say, structural issues. You know yeah. that aren't um, totally solved by the current budget, I guess, recent budget surplus in the state of California. Um, but I think that that means, in in combination with high enrollments, that there are a large group of students who are going to be attracted to the kinds of things that we care about and that we talk about. So. You know, social inequality, social injustice, social movement, social change, you know, um, how, you know, local economies and the state of California's economy is tied in with global transformations in science, technology, you know, industry, those those sorts of things. So, I mean, I'm I'm happy for you all in California, <laughs> um, but there are certain challenges that I think our discipline is uniquely situated to discuss and help students understand mm -hmm. And so hopefully that's attractive. I mean, it does help to have 35, 40, 45,000 students yeah. uh, to draw from, especially <laughs> with these like structural bottlenecks that JP is talking about in other disciplines that, you know, 
the marginal cost I would think of adding a sociologist to the UCSD sociology department is a small fraction of what the marginal cost is uh, of attracting a new physicist for like experimental physicist, for example, or mm-hmm. a person who does, you know, bench lab science, you know? So if I'm thinking about budget resources, if I'm thinking about sort of where to get my biggest bang in terms of enrollment and sustainability for just classes from an administrative perspective, I, I start to think, well, maybe that English department and that sociology department, that political science department, that psych department, they don't look so bad in comparison to maybe some of these other ones. That last bit is more speculative, but, I, but I'd but i be interested to learn more. Dan, would you like to be dean at UCSD? I mean, because we we, we could recruit you as a dean. <laughs> exactly that perspective. Don't do it, Dan! <laughs> I'll just say Don't this, ever JP. go to the dark side. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very um, pleased to have a tenure position at Abilene Christian University. Uh, I had a friend who was, a, who was a salesperson, and he told me, he said, you know, I always tell people I'm never looking, but I'm always willing to have a conversation. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Charlie, do you have any takes on this? Respect the hustle. Um, I mean, one thing I think, I wonder if there's also kind of this cultural story as well. I mean, I, I mean, so there is something unique about California, right? It's all the Cal States, all the UCs. But if this sort of is more of this progressive sort of mindset that you expect of the populace in California, why don't you see it in Illinois? Why don't you see it yeah. so much in New York? You see it within the CUNY system, but why not at UMass? And I'm wondering if there's something unique that, the, that California has done um, uh, amongst its departments to make it an attractive major. I mean, look, this, the one really great thing about sociology is that it's everything. The one bad thing about sociology <laughs> is that it's, right? And I'm kind of wondering if there's something strategic about make, uh, taking advantage of the flexibility to make it everything to everyone, right? Um, I mean, one of the things, like one of the majors that's growing the most is healthcare. And I'm kind of wondering, at least in our case, one of the things that we did in Arizona was sort of try to piggyback on this rise, uh, an interest in healthcare. And I'm wondering if like, maybe that was some kind of strategic decision that was done uh, amongst the UCs. Like, is there something unique about what they're doing there that's that's grown enrollment? Because I think one of, I mean, sociology is kind of, um, you know, think of the hierarchy of fields, right? Sort of this Comtean kind of ordering. We're kind of at the bottom, even though he had us at the top, you know, (laughs) but I mean, it's, but it's, but sociology speaks to pretty much every single social ill and social problem that we're facing. I mean, look at the midterms, right? We like, look at all the things that we just, that we, that we discussed that sociology touches on. So, you know, it's obvious to me why this should not, should, should be one of the more popular majors. Um, and I'm kind of wondering if there's more of like a like a functional thing that we ought to be doing to attract more people that apparently something that's happening at the UCs or Cal States that they're doing pretty well. Yeah. Okay. So part of it is big schools. Like Kim Whedon of Cornell made a very good point. The big departments are all in large institutions. If Princeton had 800 sociology graduates a year, you'd have to enroll half the university in sociology. So here, check this out. This is... Uh, best schools by the ratio of sociology graduates to all graduates and Mm -hmm. sitting at number eight is uc san diego jp guys are yeah you guys are doing a a a good job i guess so that is uh, amazing i did not know that and i'm director of undergraduate studies You are the seventh best enrolled department in the United States. Number one is Wake Forest. There's some good people at Wake Forest. Yeah. It's like 9% sociology. So Wake Forest is immensely, uh, I guess it's very popular. There's some great schools up here. Utah, there's tons of great people. Hawaii at Manoa. I mean, I've run into tons of people from there. They're great. 
all the way down. There's some really good people. You um, at 20. That's interesting. Right? Right? <laughs> so, like, what's interesting to me about this, though, is, like, if we're going to figure out what's going on with sociology, we should be looking to the schools that are successful, figuring out what's going on. And this list is not the typical list. Like, these are not the schools that are put at the center of our discipline. And uh, maybe it's time for us to just everybody take a look and see what uh, what's going on. To our uh, to those of us joining, we've got ten people here. I'm like uh, I'm super excited. Welcome to all of you <laughs> who are joining us. If you uh, put something in the chat window, we're watching it and uh, we'll respond. So join the conversation if you want. I have one last bit, and then we can move on to the sociology of science. I know this went a little long, but I was having a really good time. We were talking about a lot of these schools are big state schools. New York and California have a commitment to open access through like, you know, economies of scale institutions. So uh, I have a little rough and or, or like back of the envelope regression analysis to share with you. Uh, I'll just do the quick interpretation of it. This is like a little bonus. So what this model says is like if you want to create a formula to guess how many sociologists were would be at your school you can just uh take the number 4.4 and if you had one one hundredth of your graduating class like uh one uh, percent of your graduating students in general that can get you a rough estimate of your sociology so a bigger school that's not surprising uh, if you just do school size, the R squared is 34%. You know, you're not really explaining a third, but like you're explaining a third. We'll just say that to mm -hmm. not be pedantic. But then when you add the, uh, the second model adds a count of white men and a count or a, 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 a count of men and a count of whites. And basically what this says is for every non-white, non-male student, about 1.5% of them are expected to be in sociology. White non-males, it's like three in a thousand. And every additional white male lowers the sociology enrollments uh, estimate mm -hmm. by 0. 0.004. So, but uh, the, the R squared is like 40%, which means the majority of it is left unexplained just for whatever. Um, but what this is saying is that we are certainly serving non-white students and uh male student uh, non-male students and that's an important part of our market uh, which i thought interesting any any reactions or takes on that or if not we'll just we'll just move forward all right that was my first banter segment in i don't know how long and uh, i super missed it so i'm glad that it's here for this new iteration uh, of the podcast that was fun all right so now let's turn to a discussion about the sociology of science, knowledge, and technology, and a new book by J.P. Pardoguera, The Quantified Scholar. It's a study of efforts to organize the British Academy with quantitative performance uh, metrics. It's an interesting piece uh, of sociology of science, knowledge, and technology, it's, or SCAT. Do you guys call yourselves SCAT? No. <laughs> I use STS. STS. <laughs> it felt odd. It felt like nobody would be like, yeah, I'm into scat. We're the, we're the scats. 
<laughs> I, remember the so, news, the, I remember the newsletter for a long time. I think it might still was scatology. And I just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before we start talking in particular about, uh, 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 you know, your field to the non-scat sociologist, to the non-science sociologist, can you tell us about this subfield? Like what do sociology of sociologists of science and technology bring to bigger discussions? Like what issues do uh, sociologists engage with science and what do we bring to the table? Uh, you wanna start, uh, uh, JP? So I think that the, the way I was trained into that, well, first I'm not a sociologist uh, and all my training has been in STS, <laughs> sort of. Uh, and I think that the way it was introduced to me and the way I understand it and live it in a sense is by thinking about the the social influences um, on knowledge formation and knowledge production. So the the key thing is that if you go back a century, philosophers were trying to think about what distinguished true knowledge, true scientific knowledge from pseudo knowledge and from things that were not science. And sociology went into that conversation not by trying to parse what is and what isn't, but trying to understand how knowledge is produced in particular cultural and institutional contexts and what shapes its adoption, its rejection, et cetera, et cetera, without having to go into that more messy domain of saying, oh, yeah, this is true. And I think that that's one of the key things that that sociology has done tremendously well and the social sciences have done incredibly well in relation to the study of science. It They presented these dynamics of how science is made on the ground, uh, how it's produced, how claims are articulated and then adopted, how they travel, how they sometimes disappear, et cetera, et cetera. And how all of that is ultimately based on the work of social institutions and the work of people who are ultimately social agents, not these disembodied epistemic brains floating in <laughs> space. And what does that bring to the table? Like when you're with other experts who study science, maybe are a little more technological determinists in their view, like what does, like what the, what, what do we bring to the table, our discipline, you think? Complaints. No, <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I, I mean, I think I think it's what what one of the things that we do contribute is a sort of more reflexive assessment of of how the claims are coming or are based on the on the position on the of the individuals who are making those claims. And I think that that is something really basic, this very naive, almost idea of interests um, behind the formation of scientific claims but it's something that is very useful because when you have someone who says he's a very successful billionaire who buys a social network yeah. and says he's gonna save it in 55 seconds <laughs> you know based on all this other sociological <laughs> sort of bits of information that it's not gonna actually work <laughs> Char Char the sad thing is the sad thing is, like, you don't even know which one he's talking about, too, because you could actually put that to a lot of different cases. <laughs> Charles, do you have anything to add to that? Like, how, what do you, how do you see your, like, your role in the big conversation as a sociologist of science? You and people like you. Like, what do you guys yeah. throw in? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was trained as a sociologist of scientific knowledge. Um, and then when we think of SCAT, right, uh, in the, the more in sort of the <laughs> ASA section type, you know, it sort of gets bundled together, but there are distinct sort of streams to this, right? There is something that's distinct about the sociology of science that's distinct from the sociology of knowledge that's distinct from the sociology of technology, right? Um, whereas science and knowledge are kind of more intertwined, but knowledge itself, you think of, you know, Karl Mannheim and, and sort of ideology and utopia, that's sort of more abstract, right? Sort of really, really uh, sort of plugs into this notion of like fake news and whatnot. So, um, but at least in terms of the sociology of science, I think you know, I sort of situate myself kind of in the sociology of science and in sort of the science of science kind of space, which is sort of this really weird meta field that uses um, big data to study scientific trends sort of at a, at a sort of a very large scale. Um, and when, you know, science is actually one of the more fun, it's a fundamental social institution, right? The ability for humans to abstract is sort of what distinguishes us from other complex societies that exist, like bees and horses and what have you, right? I think we're a little bit better than dolphins and whatnot, but maybe not given our more recent history. Um, but it's it's sort of a distinguishing feature, are able to understand and recognize the physical world. Um, and considering where we are right now as a species, we just hit 8 billion people on this planet. We have issues of climate change, global pandemics. Um, science uh, and technology are at the core of all of these things, right? Um, when you think of geopolitics, something that I'm personally interested in, um, science is deeply intertwined with, um, with, with like sort of who sort of uh, with, with, with power politics, right? So I think, so, you know, in many ways, you know, I don't want to sound like the hammer and the nail here, but science uh, really comes to define mostly every aspect of our modern lives, right? So what it brings to the table is sort of nuances to really every aspect of, of, of social life in many ways. Nice. What are the classics in the field as far as you guys are concerned? Charlie, start us off with this. Like what's the, what, what is always on the syllabus? Uh, well, JP's book um, to start off with. <laughs> and I don't see that flipping. I actually think it's a fantastic piece. Um, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm actually prepping my, my syllabus for next semester. So, um, you know, I, I think um, uh, at least in the sociology of science, uh, Bruno Latour, Michelle Lamont, which are excellent, um, really great uh, examples of, uh, you know, qual, qual work. Um, and I say this as someone who's coming more of the computational side, Monheim, Berger and Luckman as well. So you have some more of the classics there. Um, you know, and I think there's uh, there are also a lot of other exciting things that are coming in again from the science of science that are more that are newer that I think are turning in, that could have the potential to turn into more um, canonical pieces. So if you have any other good readings too, JP, I definitely would want to hear it because it's sort of sparse in some areas. <laughs> What's in the canon for you, JP? Must read if you a student wants to get into social science. So I'm I'm an Edinburgh guys so it's it's uh early donald mckenzie on statistics for example it's also uh barry barnes uh david bloor i think that those are really easy and simple introductions to the the field because they the concepts are so essential and so basic and so generalizable in a sense that you can then take them on into a bunch of things but that's like what 40 50 years old uh and of course tons of things have been done since then, um, and I would, of course, include the work of people like Donna Haraway, uh, yeah. Maria de la Piu de la Casa. So there's a bunch of new things that have been happening in the last uh, 20 years that I would definitely also include. It's so much. It's a huge field now. It's yeah. a massive, massive field. Dan, you're from that field. Do you want to give anybody a bump while we're on the topic? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I I have been interested in some of the conversations around racial inequality and racial injustice and in technology, kind of algorithmic discrimination, uh, the ways that science and technology are used as adjuncts to kind of the carceral state and other ways that social um, control works. And so uh, Anthony Hatch has a couple of books that I think are worth looking at. Ruha Benjamin has Race After Technology that I think is worth looking at. Alondra Nelson's work on uh, genealogy and you know, for public genealogy uh, is, is super interesting. So those, off the top of my head, those are the ones, those are people who just come to mind for me. But but as JP and, and uh, Charlie have said, I mean, it's a it's a large it's a large field and you could carve out very highly specialized seminars on almost any of these areas. Yeah, right. So uh, let's get into some contemporary classics and JP's <laughs> The Quantified Scholar. Uh so JP, do you want to start us off? Just like tell us the backstory. How'd you get into this? Uh, how'd you get into this uh, study? Is this uh, some? Is there some autobiography in here? Oh yeah, completely. <laughs> so so I do I do open with this vignette, which was what triggered me to do the 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 book. Uh, it it happened maybe I don't know eight years ago, something like that. Um and. Again, there's these evaluations in the United Kingdom every five to six years where departments have to demonstrate the excellence of their research. And we had just submitted our portfolio for the department and had this meeting with the head of the department where we were discussing a bunch of things. And one of the last items on the agenda was having to come up with a list of the journals where we had to publish. Um, because that was a list that would be used by the administration to better assess our files and our progress in the department. And it was just such a weird experience because there we were, a room full of sociologists, some of whom taught, had read, and contributed to work on rankings and lists and all these things, sort of naturalizing the fact that we were producing a list without even mentioning that the exercise was in and of itself completely idiotic. So we <laughs> participated in that. And when I left that, it's when I left that that sort of um, faculty meeting, I was like, oh yeah, this is this is definitely a study. This is sort of like Michelle Lamont meets Wendy Esplund, and there's something there. Uh, and it was so, so peculiar. And of course, going through through the whole process and then seeing from afar how the process has developed in the last few years was also really critical to, to sort of developing some of the ideas in the book. But it was basically uh, an autoethnography of how faculty gets tortured by faculty. <laughs> yeah, I figured a little bit, a little bit of that was lurking in there so tell tell us about the book though what did the british uh system do why did they do it and what were the effects so the the exercise these evaluations started in the 80s when the budgets for higher education in the uk were cut uh massively so there was a huge contraction of budgets for public universities in the uk most if not all of the research intensive universities in the UK are public. 
Uh, and part of this cut meant that academics started thinking about how best to use the, the funds that were now available in more efficient ways. And of course, the issue was, why would you have 25 physics departments when you can have seven and focus resources on those seven if they're the best physics departments in the country? So they came up with this exercise. It was a very um, sort of light touch way of evaluating the departments. They had to submit their CVs, lists of publications, and two pieces, uh, two research outputs produced over the last four or five years in those departments that demonstrated the excellent research that was being conducted there. And out of that, a panel would decide uh, who would receive more, what we'll call then quality-related funds um, in the next period. And that really simple light touch exercise evolved into this much more complicated bureaucratic uh, enterprise that has become known as the Research Excellence Framework, where you have every single full-time faculty member in UK higher education submitting four pieces. That was in 2014. It's changed a little bit more recently, but four pieces of research that are read by a panel of peers, mostly senior professors in the field that read them as if they were student essays um, just close to the summer. They look at them, they sort of measure them, they sort of evaluate them, and they come up with a score for everything. And then that score is linked to the research allocations or the resource allocations for that department in the next period. Now, what is really funny is that it's not actually a lot of money. So it's two billion pounds a year, which is not a lot for everything, for socio social sciences, humanities, arts, uh, hard sciences, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not a lot, no. um, but it is very much about being one of the prestigious institutions that can demonstrate that you're doing the best possible research in the country. And it's become a very central element in the way institutions understand themselves in the broader sort of firmament of, of the, the sector. And also in the way academics, uh, I think about their production, think about their projects, think about their publication strategies, and the worth of their colleagues elsewhere. Mm. So it's become really this all-encompassing culture of, of evaluation, which is also something that Strathern already said years ago, but, mm. but that is even more intense now. So, so wait, just to clarify, so what happens is you're a professor and you have to submit every during every period four of your papers and basically a colleague will give you a grade and if you're one of the and if everybody gets a good grade in your department then you get some extra money and so everybody wants to be someone who can raise the score of their department i suppose right you want to be a, exactly. a grade raiser rather than a, a drag on the group and so now everybody's just trying to get good grades basically everybody's looking for grades is that is that basically what it amounts to that's basically it though the funny thing is that the actual real grades are unknown mm. when you mm. submit the work to these panels 
um, the panels come up with the grades, with the scores for all the papers, books, et cetera, et cetera. And immediately after the, the averages are calculated, they destroy all the information about those individual grades. So you don't know if you're a four-star or a three-star or a two-star researcher. Um, four is like the best you can be. What you can know is the approximation that your own department makes of your research in these internal simulations of the evaluation. So in order to prepare the best possible submission, they can. What departments do is they run these mock assessments, these simulations of the exercise where everyone sends everything they have. Then they, they're scored by senior members of the department, um, external guests that are paid for to have a look at those, those bits of research. And then the department produces its own estimate of what the the individual bits of work are worth in a sense. And that's the one that really hits people because that's the one that is associated to your file, to your sort of productivity within the institution. And that then leads to, for example, being moved on to a more teaching intensive track if you're underperforming according to the department or to um, other sort of awkward experiences within the institution it's not it's not the actual panel which is doing the disciplining it's the folks next door who are reading your papers and saying oh you're a two because this is not the best you could have done yeah what were the effects like what what happened were people making more stuff did the character of people's production change what happened so one of the the things that came out just as I was starting the um, the quantitative part of this study was a really cool um, paper by some economists at Nottingham that showed that in the last exercise, there was an important transfer of folks around the evaluation. So very senior and very prominent people would move institutions throughout or between the the evaluations because it, it was important for institutions to attract the most productive and most visible uh, scholars. And those who stayed would suffer wage penalties in comparison to the average of the, the sort of profession. And this was for economists in the UK. And what I wonder is like, does this have broader effects on the social sciences? And what I did is I looked at the the effects of these evaluations on the the transfer market or the mobility of academics in the UK. And what you can see very clearly is that over the period of these evaluations, over the span of these different interventions, people have moved in very patterned ways so that they move from situations where they're sort of redundant in their department. So there's like two people doing STS. Mm. That's way too many people doing STS. So one of them moves uh, to a different department. uh, And at the same time, they move from departments that are less typical in comparison to the most dominant departments in the field to those that are more typical. 
And over time, this creates departments that look more alike. So diversity of departments decreases. And then also diversity of what people say and how they say it changes over time. Uh, you can also track this using uh, computational methods and word embeddings to see how the way people use concepts becomes also more similar uh, over the, the, the evaluation period. And in a sense, it creates more homogeneous uh, forms of social science, not only epistemically, but also organizationally. Charlie, what's your what's your reaction to the to JP's uh, story? You've read the book and uh, spoken with him extensively. Like, what was your, uh, you know, what, what what did you pull from 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 this? First story? thing that came to mind when I read your book, JP, was that this is adult A levels. So A levels are the <laughs> exams that yeah. UK yeah. go through, and it's sort of this it's this whole ritual, right? Um, okay. You have to take a mock exam. The student, the, your teacher kind of gives you a sense of like, oh, well, we think you're probably not going to get an A. We think we're going to get a B. So maybe you don't maybe don't aim for Oxford or something like that. Yeah. Right. And I think this is sort of like to me, this sounded like kind of this an extension of that kind of culture. Right. Where um, we have like sort of these mock evaluations, um, put together your best work. And then we'll kind of give you a sense of eh, maybe you're not exactly like Edinburgh material. You're more Nottingham material. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that's actually kind of like really interesting. Um, especially given that the UK is such a compared to the US, right, which is really decentralized, was sort of the US came about higher education came out as this very bottom up um, kind of process, right? I think of like a, uh, a David Library's work on the history of of a US higher education, which is just happened to be the best by circumstance in Bali. Um, whereas the UK, you know, the quality amongst UK universities, it isn't this the, doesn't. The, the, the gap doesn't exist to the same degree as it does in the US, right? So yes, you have Oxbridge and yes, you have the LSC Edinburgh and these other really great places, but it's not to say that, you know, getting a degree from some other university that may not be as well known is exactly, you know, the quality isn't that that huge of a difference, right? Mm. So the, the, the fact that this has persisted for so many years across so many different governments um, for universities that for the most part are all for the pretty much high quality, um, I, it's kind of spoke to me sort of this very unique, um, very kind of uh, sort of a British interpretation of, of how to kind of evaluate and situate uh, other people. Because these, these evaluative frameworks aren't just unique to the UK, right? Um, mm -hmm. Many countries, especially those who are trying to adopt more of the tenure track model that we see in the US and Canada, have adopted similar evaluative frameworks where you have to evaluate you know which journals are the top journals are you and are you are you are you hitting international journals how many journals are you hit are you are you publishing in are you publishing with international co-authors so the idea of the framework is kind of a universal thing but sort of the way it was implemented in the uk just kind of was such a unique um sort of path dependency of of just of a very kind of unique british sort of setup am i reading that right jp i don't want to mischaracterize yes yeah. no yeah completely i think it, i think that it had I mean, I, I never thought of the affinities or the similarities with the A-levels, but it's precisely that. I mean, it's a it's a particularly British story, but at the same time, it's really generalizable because the thing is, a lot of the logics under underlying this process are the same ones that animate evaluations in Australia, mm -hmm. in Singapore, in, in, a, in Mexico, in Brazil, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's interesting to see uh, sort of, to then think about disentangling the British bits from from the more like generalizable, oh, this is the issue with how we evaluate our peers, basically. Yeah. And, and do you see that more as an issue of just competition? So for instance, 
you know, science has always been a global enterprise, um, but markedly so within the past 20 years, right? So it's not necessarily that Cambridge or Oxford, the LSE can rest on their laurels of being these ancient universities in the case of Cambridge and Oxford or the LSE just training the best social scientists out there, that there is growing competition from the US, from continental Europe, from Australia. So there's not, so there's this recognition of, you know, we need to kind of get our stuff together. Do you think that's sort of also part of that impetus as well? Yeah, completely. So one of the things that is also animating this is the the opening up of international uh, labor markets in academia, which were not not as common, at least in certain parts of the world, 20, 30 years ago. And I think that that has changed the dynamics of how or the the use of these evaluations and the position of these evaluations in the in the way people think about their strategies around uh, hiring, recruitment, retention, et cetera, et cetera. Charlie, what are like, what are the complications with finding ways to quantify academic output or the research? Like what, what are the challenges? Like, why can't we just get a, a quick number that accurately <laughs> scores us all? Yeah. Um, I think it's sort of it, it's it's social science 101, right? Think of any concept and trying to quantify it. Something that's sort of just very amorphous. You just run into tons of issues. So there's nothing really unique about studying science and scientific careers that you wouldn't find studying anything else, right? Um, you know, a lot I use citations a lot as one example. So, you know, how many times does is my paper cited versus how many times do I cite X papers across fields and countries? Citations are the, the it's the coin of the realm, right? But you could imagine there are tons of issues with, with studying citations. First, fields use citations very differently. People publish at different rates. Um, the repositories that we use have tons of biases, right? So I use data from something called OpenAlex, which, uh, which came from the Microsoft Academic Graph, Knowledge Graph Project. Um, uh, and these are sort of these large metadata public uh, repositories of scientific publications. There are biases towards um, toward publications that are come from the West, English language biases. Mm -hmm. So when you try to make any sort of story, you're, you're always having to deal with the fact that how representative is this to what's actually happening, like the conversations that are actually happening amongst academics, right? Mm -hmm. So um, even, you know, we think of like impact factor, right? We always think, uh, which is sort of how in a lot of these evaluative frameworks, not necessarily in the UK, but a lot of evaluative frameworks use as their primary metric, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what's the, what's the impact factor of the journal, which in many ways is kind of ridiculous because now what you see happening is that of journals are kind of playing the game too. They're active agents and they know they need to change their impact factor so that they can attract more people. So again, it's sort of this very circular kind of logic with how do we evaluate good work? Um, mm -hmm. And I think this is sort of where the, the qual aspect of this kind of comes into play where you can have other people maybe through double-blinded review, view your papers for tenure, review it for grants and what have you. But then even in a, even that, uh, you're introduced to all sorts of other biases as well. So um, <laughs> the short answer is uh, there's no real good way to actually get about any of this, but it's important because careers are at stake, right? I mean, awards are mm -hmm. at stake. So it, it's, it, it's in some, on the one hand, it's trivial, but the other hand, they're pretty profound implications for really getting at how do we measure performance in, in science and whether even we should too. I mean, that's another question as well. JP, what's your take on that? Like just measurement and quantifying science. So I think, I think the issue is not, so of course any measure will be imperfect. Um, 
and it and every and any measure will be something that you can gain um but at the same time so one of the things that came that i came out with uh in this project is this issue of the problem is not measurement but the cultures that we develop around measurement so the moment you tie the value of an individual to publishing in a particular impact factor journal that's not something that is being done by the impact factor that's not sort of work that is embedded in the construction of the impact factor that's something that you are attributing to that number and that you are doing actively with that number so the the problem is not quantification it's being reflexive about quantification, its limitations, et cetera, et cetera, but also reflexive about how we use it in practice in determining the value of knowledge, of people, of institutions, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, I think, the, the key thing. It's not the numbers. It's the people who use the numbers. I mean, JP, I think I thought about this in a couple of ways. One, in terms of careers and how this framework certainly values certain aspects of academic careers over others in terms of research output. I mean, there's lots of things that faculty members do in addition to in addition to their research. But also, I mean, to me, a big part of your story is the, the homogenization, if we can put it that way, sort of the way that, you know, maybe sociology in this case or some of these fields are becoming more um, normal, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean, it concerns me as someone who maybe has done stuff that's not exactly mainstream sociology all the time, that if we're creating systems and being ranked and judged and our careers are being impacted by how similar our work is to other work that's judged to be of high quality, then doesn't that have implications for the overall kind of structure of the kinds of questions that are asked, maybe the types of um, research methods that are used, like, and really, you know, I'm a, a more of a critical kind of guy. So about what are the sort of critical frameworks that might be used are the more creative ways that people could could do scholarship. I mean, if we're if we're using these kinds of benchmarks that lead to homogenization, you know, what kinds of scholarship are we not seeing that we would have seen otherwise? So what are the like alternative world where we didn't punish people through disciplines. I, I mean, that's that's part of the problem. The thing is, we inhabit these disciplinary domains. And they're again, they're disciplines in, in also the disciplinary sense. And sort of thinking about how we can break away from the, the dynamics of disciplines is something really complicated that I wish I had an answer to, but I don't. Because the thing, even STS, I mean, STS is super canonical now. Uh, there's like very clear reference it, to what constitutes STS, even though it was this weird marginal field 40 years ago. Now it's completely standards. We have handbooks, we have all these like readers, we have textbooks in science and technology studies. We know who decides for what. If you're talking about technology, you have to cite these five people. If you're talking about politics, these other five, et cetera, et cetera. So breaking away from those disciplinary dynamics is 
I, I'm, is it even possible if you're doing science would be one of the questions. Is science like inextricably tied to having to produce paradigmatic knowledge, which means, yeah, I mean, you're going to have to punish folks for not doing what is the accepted paradigm. And that's where I think we can create a lot of spaces for, for people who are breaking with those norms in institutions, not so much in the disciplines. That's where we as, as workers in institutions that also inhabit the disciplines have that role to play. To say, you know what, you're not a modal sociologist, but I think we should hire you because you have interesting ideas. Mm. That's a tricky thing to do uh, <laughs> because you have to convince the modal sociologist to vote for the candidate that you think is not sort of falling within the the paradigm of the field but it's a fight that I think we should we should take on we should sort of engage it that's how I got hired (laughs) 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 but so I actually have so I have a few sort of dalliance projects the best way to describe them that uh that look at because i study global science and what i've noticed is that most scientific research what gets researched is becoming more homogenous around the world not just in terms of what you see from the text but also who's getting cited right there is sort of this global process we're all kind of citing the same thing and this is something that's happening across multiple fields and this is sort of the paradox of globalization that yes we invite more people into the conversation but there is sort of this homogenization and it's not the sort of a transnational conversation that's happening it's a very distinct conversation that's very very western very very us centric so there is sort of this mimicking of wanting to be like the you know like by be like the leader like follow the leader the consequence of that is that anytime you sort of quilt different diversity from any sort of collective problem-solving enterprise, and by diversity, you could imagine identity diversity, but at least like a diversity of different ideas or perspectives, um, results, the result is that the, 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 the ideas that come out of those systems tend to be poorer, right? You don't necessarily, the, 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 the turn of novelty and potentially innovation starts to decline. So when everyone starts doing the exact same form of sociology, the exact same form of economics, the exact same form of physics, um, you have the potential that there is sort of this slowing down of science. And indeed, um, more recently, there's been a lot of really interesting work that shows that science is in some ways slowing down, right? Um, some argue that yeah. it's just because science is so big, but if you buy into sort of this other mechanism that it's the sense that everyone's doing the same thing, everyone's uh, kind of look trying to sort of look like everyone else, that you're not you're not sort of preserving different cool ideas, sort of, you know, iconoclastic people who might sort of break the mold and break normal science, right? To think of like this Thomas Kuhn kind of way, right? To sort of break the mold of sort of the conventional way with which things are done in a field. And I think it's 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 worrying, right? And sort of therein lies the paradox of a lot of what we do in the in these fields. We're more interconnected. We could talk to each other more uh, rapidly. I mean, we could share people in the UK can share notes with, ha- with what's happening in other countries as well. But that open communication also kind of leads to um, other power structures that exist that could potentially be hurting these fields. Yeah, it seems like it would push people to jump into whatever is hot, you know, and then basically like I can think of, for example, in podcasting, some of the leading researchers started in like the early aughts and were not cited for like, like a decade until the medium itself grew and then those scholars work was more relevant, but you needed, you know, some means of having people just working on irrelevant things so that like the knowledge mm-hmm. was available should the occasion 
rise. And if everybody's doing, you know, the same five hot things that you see in the news, well, then, you know, science is going to be chasing the news rather than sort of leading people with new ideas and things like that. I have a question. In general, like, JP, after this experience, like, what did you, through the experience, what did you learn in general about the task of, like, putting people to metrics, creating sort of quantitative bases to run your job? It seems like it's something we're all getting uh, put to in our work. And, like, what do you think it's doing to us if your field experience is, like, any indication? So I think that if, if you take the metrics at face value, then you are just allowing uh, the power structures that are driving the metrics to sort of control your life. Uh, I think that the the key thing is not necessarily thinking. So again, I think that the issue is not thinking as of metrics as the problem, but thinking of them as a point of conversation on how alternative ways of managing spaces, of running organizations, et cetera, et cetera, can be done. So an example, we talk a lot about diversity in higher education, uh, and we measure it in very weird ways. And we measure it actually for a very intelligent field where we're full of lots of really intelligent people in very simplistic uh, manners. And I think that having metrics that capture, for example, more multidimensional forms of, of diversity, of teaching, et cetera, et cetera, would be a way of taking control over our workplace. So again, it's it's about thinking not of metrics as, as something that is necessarily problematic but as something that we can use to produce better environments for us and for others and for us into the future, in a sense. And and again, how we measure things, what we decide to measure, all of, all of those are points of discussion that we can have, particularly with people who think that metrics are what matters at the end of the day. I think we lost Dan. I think Dan had to go teach. Oh, he's here. Uh, sorry, Dan. <laughs> I know a that Dan... emergency disruption here that happens at a liberal arts college with lots of people knocking at your door. But I'm yeah. back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think we have to wrap up anyways because it, it's we're coming up on an hour and past the one hour mark is when I start getting in trouble with producers who have to go through this afterwards <laughs> and cut it into something good. But before we wrap it up, uh, uh, do you want to give any shout outs to some colleagues who you feel are doing some good work and, uh, you know, they deserve a mention, deserve sort of a, a, a shout out of any type. Anybody, uh, anybody want to, uh, I guess we, we talked about earlier, but anybody else to give a shout out to before we wrap it up? Well, I just want to say Charlie's work is amazing and everyone should, I mean, the, the, the work on paradigmaticness is really super awesome. I think it's, it's something that everyone should totally engage with. Thank you. So I, I, oh yeah, Dan, Dan. Yeah, I just think I, I was think, thinking about the sociology of science and the science of science and John Evans at Chicago and Jacob Foster at UCLA, I think are doing some really interesting, there are other people too, I'm sure I'm missing, mm -hmm. uh, are doing some really interesting work there as well. I mean, when I encountered their, their stuff, my mind is kind of just blown. And so <laughs> I had that experience reading early STS stuff. And when I read those books, I also have that experience. So that's, uh, that's good work uh, worth pointing to as well. 
Charlie, any shoutouts? Yeah, I'll highlight uh, three of my uh, fellow junior colleagues, aside from JP, uh, whose work I'm a huge fan of, obviously. Um, uh, Misha Toplitsky at New Michigan, awesome, cool work on peer review. I'm also a James Evans student. Um, Elina Makinen at Tampere University in Finland, uh, one of the best qual researchers I know who studies interdisciplinarity. And Molly King at uh, Santa Clara University, also really, really cool stuff on just uh, uh, knowledge and science and citations and whatnot. Oh, Molly um, so King's in the chat window. Molly oh. King's in the chat window. Molly, are you still there? She had some interesting to that. say, but I saw it after the conversation was okay. over. <laughs> All right. Okay, well, let's wrap it up then. Thank you very much to the uh, three of you for coming. Uh, you know, it's always wonderful uh, to hear from you, JP. I love following you on social media. Uh, you're <laughs> such a funny and smart guy. Charlie, uh, you know we love and miss you so much. You're such a gifted, uh, oh, gifted. Sure. No, I, I miss you guys too. Guy. And it's great to see both you and, and JP. And nice to meet you as well, Dan. Hold on, wait, quick, quick question. Quick question from Sarah Bratt. Anyone going to the International Science of Science Conference in DC this summer? Anybody uh, going? Mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, should. <laughs> it looks like a tentative. No, I guess everybody's waiting to see if like they'll get travel money this year. Who the heck knows what's going on? All right. I also want to give a shout out to Sarah Bratt at, at the iSchool at uh, also at, at Arizona. Really, really cool work on bibliometrics as well. So um, shout out to my colleagues as well. <laughs> well, that's awesome. We're glad you're here, Sarah Molly. Why don't you uh, come on the show? next time you can tell us about what you guys are doing and we'll do a little we'll do another uh we'll do another science science episode all right well that just about does it for year five episode one of the annex we will release uh, so this uh this video should be available on youtube as soon as we're done the stream and we're gonna release the audio of it uh, on uh, the Annex podcast. I think next week uh, we're going to release uh, an audio interview of Beth Berman by Dan. Oh. Yeah, and maybe we'll get a little banter thing before we play the audio. Uh, Beth Berman is just one of the best. She's like one of my favorites. Fantastic. She's so darn funny too. Like yeah. she's easily one of the funniest people in all of American sociology. So <laughs> Uh, that's good. And then check this out in in two weeks. Hold on. Let me just make this big. In two weeks, we are going to have uh, a great panel on uh, human rights and making governments respect them. Uh, we're going to talk about Lisa Hayar's new book, and we are going to talk to uh, two additional, in addition to uh, Professor Hayar, we got uh, Christopher N.J. Roberts from Minnesota and Hedy Viterbo uh, from Queen Mary University in London. So don't miss that. We're here Tuesdays at lunchtime, Eastern time. Um, if you want something featured, if you got something interesting, reach out to us. People don't contact us except for the people who you see always in uh, sociology <laughs> media. And you see them because they promote their stuff. Uh, this is a very small community uh like it's 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 not big so share your stuff uh we want to get to know you. you can reach out to us on social media i'm still waiting to get a mastodon account but all of the servers are locked up right now so you can uh, uh toot me uh on mastodon and we got the soch annex 
still going on and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. So on behalf of my colleagues, Daniel Morrison from Abilene Christian University, uh, J.P. Pardoguera from the University of California at San Diego, and Charles Gomez from the University of Arizona, I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York. You've been listening to the Annex Sociology Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.